uh, wrote a book called Night. And uh, it, it recalls his uh, time in Auschwitz concentration camp. And when he was there, he was forced to watch uh, a 14-year-old boy be tortured and then hung. A boy he called uh, the sad-eyed angel. But as they watched this horrific uh, event unfold behind him, in the lines of the prisoners, was one particular person who repeatedly, repeatedly whispered the same thing. Where is God? Where is God? And, and you can look back to the last century that uh, is, is gone, you know, kind of 15 year, 13 years ago, and you can see unspeakable suffering that has gone on through you know, characters like Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin. And the same question is often asked, isn't it? Where is God? Where is God? <coughs> and, and many will say, oh, humanity surely must have learnt it must have moved on, must have advanced and developed. To, 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 that is now the past. We're better than that now. That's the hope, certainly, of kind of atheistic natural scientists. And that was the hope of actually the League of Nations that was set up after World War I, after all that bloodshed. Very kind of aspirational in its hope. And, and it remained very hopeful until Germany and Italy and then Japan remove themselves from the League of Nations. And you know what happened next. It's the aim of the United Nations as well. But it's clear that people like Syria and North Korea don't want to hear much of what they're saying. You see, suffering is all around us, isn't it? And from tyrannical rule to what we see in natural disasters, like, like hurricanes and tsunamis, the continued refrain is the same, isn't it? Where's God in this? Where is God? But what about, you know, you're thinking they're big things. They're, they're slightly removed. What about the stuff that you and I may go through a little bit more? Think of bereavement. Think of illness and disability and uh, abuse and rejection, loneliness, barrenness. This is the paradox of life, though, isn't it? You know, there can be moments of exquisite joy, and you'll see on your screen there. You know, you, you might get married. You might have a child. You might get a new job. You, might, well, you can go from that, though, the exquisite joy to the... Absolute sorrow and suffering, very quickly. The woman that you, that you meet, or the man that you meet, and you, you get married, and everything's great and exciting and joyful, and yet you might see them die of cancer. Uh, you might see them, you know, bear a child that is dead. That was a friend of mine just a few months ago. You might see them unable to walk, or even unable to speak, or even if they have something like Alzheimer's, even unable to remember your name. We will all suffer. And in the midst of our suffering, uh, the last thing we want is someone to come and stand up here with a Bible and start kind of spouting what they think or what the Bible says. We, we, we just want someone to comfort us, don't we? And uh, listen. And maybe hold us and even cry with us. But I guess we must all accept we need to prepare for suffering. And we need to think about this issue because... I hope we want to be ready for when it does come. The big point I want to say here, and it comes up on the screen, is that suffering is inevitable. Let me put it a better way. I use the words of the writer C.S. Lewis. We've had a quote from him already from that clip. But here's a quote from one of his, probably one of his best books. It's called The Problem with Pain. He puts it this way. Creatures 
cause pain by being born, and live by inflicting pain, and in pain they mostly die. In the most complex of all the creatures, man, yet another quality appears, which we call reason, whereby he is enabled to foresee his own pain, which henceforth is preceded with acute mental suffering, and to foresee his own death while keenly desiring permanence. And what Lewis is observing is that, that folks like you and I, creatures, some, although we're the higher realm of creatures here, we create, we live in, and are born in, ask your mum, I'm sure she'll testify to that, I'm sure Courtney will testify to the fact, um, you know, that, that as children are born, we inflict pain. And we're often responsible for pain and suffering too. And Lewis goes on, he kind of develops his argument and says, yeah, the more and more kind of technologically advanced humanity has become, we've become better and better at inflicting pain. Yes, better and better at kind of stopping pain, healthcare and so on, but also better at inflicting pain. And he concludes something like this, their history is largely a record of crime, war, disease and terror, with just sufficient happiness interposed to give them, while it lasts, an agonised apprehension of losing it, and when it is lost, the poignant misery of remembering. It's a very bleak picture, isn't it? And it's the picture of kind of World War II, uh, just ended, rations and so on, is, is kind of inflicting. So it's a very, very bleak picture. That I guess we, as a generation, have been protected from. And we should be very thankful for that. And yet that is the reality, and the point remains, suffering is inevitable. And I guess if you look in your own life and you look at those around the world, you see that that is true. We try to avoid it. And we're not kind of masochistic. We're not looking for pain and suffering. No, that's not the case. But we must be realistic. Suffering is an inevitable part of life. So how should we respond when suffering comes our way? How do you respond Oh, you can turn to all sorts of things. I found this little book this week. It's called True Serenity, Finding Peace in a Hectic World. You can find these type of books everywhere, whether you go to W.H. Smith or Waterstones. They're all out there. This is the kind of response that many people in the world turn to when they're going through difficult times. Listen to some of these gems of wisdom if you can. In your time of suffering, you need to put freshly laundered and iron sheets on your bed and sink into a blissful cocoon of restfulness with a teddy bear, of all things. <laughs> That's what you need to do when you're suffering. This is one, perhaps, for the morning folk. You need to take a morning walk barefoot across the lawn and feel the dew on the grass beneath your feet. Look at that. It's a beautiful bit of wisdom for you when you're really, really going through difficult times. Oh, perhaps this is the best one. It's simple, but it's to the point. You just need to go cloud watching. What better wisdom could you have? I mean, the point is, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But these books go off the shelves of Waterstones and W.H. Smith like hotcakes. Because people want something. They want to cling to something, but they're limp platitudes, aren't they? And they'll help, maybe for a second, as you kind of get into your bed and the sheets are nicely... Yeah, five seconds but you'll still have the cancer, you'll still miss the the loved one, you'll still, and so on. 
So what do other, let's, let's think of other bigger kind of religions, worldviews, philosophies. What do they have to say on this issue of suffering? Let's look at a couple of responses, if you can. Uh, firstly, Islam. Now, the Quran states that there are, there are no accidents. Everything falls under the will of Allah, of God. And, and everything in the world is perfect because it falls under his will. And the, the, the call of the Quran, therefore, to, to, to Muslims is, is not to question Allah in your perceived suffering, but rather patiently just get through it. Even critics, though, within Islam, will state that the Quran, what does it, how does it render God? Well, God becomes this kind of uncaring, kind of removed, uh, numb to our suffering kind of God. Well, at least Islam recognises that we do suffer in some parts of our lives, even if that response seems quite cold. Now, let's look at Buddhism for a second, because... They don't recognise suffering really, really at all. In fact, they would state that any suffering that you face is just an illusion. It will be confirmed to you when you reach your final state of enlightenment. Now, that's very difficult to live out, isn't it? Can you imagine taking a little trip to Syria and saying, oh yeah, I know that all your family have been bombed and killed. It's just an illusion. I know that you're riddled with cancer, struggling to breathe, holding on to life just. It's just an illusion. It's very hard, isn't it, to live that out? Let's turn to atheism just for a second. Very popular today. I think suffering gets quite confused here because the, the, the biggest problem is who becomes the moral arbiter to say that suffering is actually suffering. Now, in a world that's created and governed by chance, you see, if you take God out of the equation, there becomes no higher divine law. Therefore, there is no injustice. There is no kind of suffering. You can't say that cancer is any worse than having a 99 flake on the beach. There's just no kind of moral quality there. Because there's no higher divine law. See, the big argument is, who is one collection of DNA to say to another collection of DNA that genocide and murder are wrong? You just can't do that in atheism if you remove the higher divine law of a godhead. John Paul Sartre, uh, he put it this way in his essay, the quote's up there for you. He, um, an essay on existentialism, he said this, if God does not exist, there's no longer any... Of, sorry... There is no longer any possibility of an a priori, that's a reason, good existing. It is nowhere written that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now on the plane where there, is, there are only human beings. Similarly, Dostoevsky wrote it like this. It's not up on your screens, but it says, he said, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. That is right, if God does not exist, we have neither behind us nor before us a luminous realm of values, nor any means of justification or any, of any behaviour whatsoever. Do you see what they're saying? Logical atheism, take God out of the equation in this world, then you may have feelings of pain, you've lost a loved one, you, you get an illness, whatever it may be. But who are you to say that that is pain when someone else may say that's joy? There's no way of saying that. And therefore, on what possible basis in that kind of world do you have ever have the right to complain? 
for your perceived feelings of, of suffering. See, if you do not believe in God, as an atheist doesn't, then the issue of suffering and evil in this world, many, many people would argue, is actually a bigger problem than if you're a believer in God, the God of the Bible. See, if there's no God, on what basis do you ask for a better world or expect a better world? So suffering, you see, it seems to be a conundrum. It seems to be a problem for all religions, all world kind of views, all philosophies. So what about God? What about the all so-called all-powerful, loving creator of the world? What about him? What has he got to say on this issue of suffering? Well, the argument against God goes something like this. Let me spell it out for you. Some people would say, if God allows evil and suffering to continue, and he, because he can't stop it, if God allows suffering to continue in life because he can't stop it, then he may be really good, but he's not all-powerful because he can't stop the suffering. On the other hand, they would say, the second part of the argument, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he could stop it, and yet he doesn't stop it, then he may be all-powerful, but he's not very good, is he? Because he's allowing the suffering to continue in your life. And they conclude the argument by saying, either way, a good all-powerful God, the good all-powerful God of the Bible, so-called, cannot exist in a world where there is suffering present. Now, that is a very, very popular argument, certainly among atheists. And people like it because what it does in their minds is simply puts kind of God in his place, kind of out of sight, out of mind. Thank you very much. That kind of parks God. I can now live life my own way. But how does God therefore respond to such an argument? Well, let's see. And let's turn to God's word. Because that is where God speaks. And here we are, God's response to suffering. Now, there are loads of passages we could turn to in the Bible, just so, so many, because suffering, as I mentioned before, isn't removed from the Bible at all. It may be the most feared reality that we all face in our lives, but God speaks into that fear again and again and again. Example, um, I won't get you to turn there, but right in the centre of your Bibles, there's the biggest book of the Bible called Psalms. It's a songbook, essentially, a collection of songs for God's people in the Old Testament. There are 150 of them. Do you know what? A third of them, a third of them are what you call laments. That is, they are cries of God's people as they suffer. They are God's words to express their feelings of pain and of sorrow in their dark times. There's even a a singular book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is a lament, surprisingly enough, given the name. It's a pouring out of one's heart in suffering. There are other books like that too. Going on to the New Testament, Jesus himself, he demonstrated his power and authority again and again and again in the gospel accounts. And yet he also pours out his heart as he suffers, as he sees a loved one die. He weeps and weeps. All this goes uh, to say that the Bible speaks into our suffering. And Jesus has experienced suffering. Uh, ultimately, of course, as he dies on a cross. But isn't that interesting? 
That the centre point of the Christian faith is not this victorious battle kind of waged by this warrior. No, it, it, it is actually as someone is shamefully hung on a Roman cross. Uh, he's mocked. He suffers pain. He isn't immune. In fact, suffering and pain is God's response to our suffering and pain. And we'll see why in a moment, I hope. But please, um, I hope you've got it open on page 1217, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 12. Briefly, as we close, what I'm going to do is hopefully begin to answer the question of tonight. We've looked at some other comparisons, but very quickly, and hopefully it will um, provoke a few questions for you. Let's look at this passage quickly. Now, I don't think we'll, we'll find all the answers here. But I hope it's a good start. Let me, I, I think it gives three ways to face suffering in the world. Let me give you some background, though, to begin with. One, Peter, you, you're probably thinking, these guys, a few thousand years ago, you know, they don't know what suffering's like. They haven't lived in London. They've not got on the tube at Southfields. They've not had to commute through in Earlsfield with all those sweaty people. They don't know what life and suffering is really about. Well, Peter... An apostle, a messenger from God, appointed by Jesus, is writing to a bunch of Christians in northern Turkey. And they have been hounded out of Rome by Emperor Nero. You can read about that story and all the goings-on in uh, the British uh, Museum. Uh, You get some glimpse of what was going on if you watch the great film Gladiator. Maximus, whatever he's called. We won't go into all that now, and I won't do the accent. But, you know, all that was going on. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians were being brutally murdered by Nero's persecution. What I'm saying is these guys know, they knew what it was to suffer terribly. And Peter, the apostle, inspired by God, writes to them. And I want us to do three quick things from this passage. We need to look back to something, we need to look forward to something, and we need to look into something. So firstly then, we're going to look back to something. And notice Peter likens pain and suffering to fire. Cast your eyes down to verse 6 and 7. I think they're going to come on the screen as well. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, fire, the, the suffering and grief in all kinds of before, it may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, what he's doing there, Peter, is he's using this metaphor of fire. And it's used in the Bible and it's used in all sorts of literature to describe pain and suffering. And we can understand that, can't we? When you've been through a difficult time in your life, a time of suffering, it feels like fire. Uh, As in you've been thrown into, literally what he's talking about here is a furnace. It's hot, it's painful. But Peter has something else in mind here. And he knew that the readers of this initial letter, when he wrote the letter, they knew what furnace he was talking about, what fire he was talking about. So let me just tell you what he was. Kind of, he was pointing back to a fire where someone was literally, some Christians were literally thrown into a fire, into a fiery furnace. And that happened back in Daniel chapter 3 in the Old Testament, where there's this man, this, this, 
this pretty crazed king called King Nebuchadnezzar. He builds a massive statue to himself. Can you imagine it in the centre of kind of Earlsfield? You know, massive bronze statue. And he says, you guys, all my subjects, you've got to bow down to my statue every day. Three guys, their names, weird names, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They were God's followers. And they said, we, we can't do that. And so therefore, as Nebuchadnezzar promised, they didn't bow down and therefore they were thrown into a fiery furnace. And the amazing thing was, the furnace was so hot that, that actually the people who threw these three men in, they all died, the guards. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, um, well, history tells us he then looked into the furnace And listen what history tells us, coming up on the screens there. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. You're probably thinking, this is bonkers. It seems it, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems so you know, crazy. But, but throughout the Bible, God's repeated refrain to his people is not, you will not go through suffering. Rather, God says, I'll be there when you do. I'll be there. And he literally was in Daniel. That's, that's the furnace that Peter is referring to when he writes uh, to these people in northern Turkey. See, the promise of the Bible is not that God will keep you from fiery trials. The promise of the Bible isn't if you go through fiery trials. The promise of the Bible says when you go through suffering, fiery trials, furnace, these all that kind of metaphorical languages. So when you go through fiery trials, the promise of the Bible is I'll be there. I'll be there if you trust in me. God similarly says uh, something like that in, in Isaiah chapter 43. He likens it to saying, to just walking with Christians to walking with them so that they won't be consumed by the suffering that they're going through. It's an amazing picture. It's not a literal picture, but it's, it's an amazing picture of saying, I know you're going through suffering, and it, you know when you are? It can eat you alive, can't it? it can totally kind of cripple you, in your, your work, your relationships. But Jesus said, God says through his word, the Bible, he says, no, I'll be there. I'll walk you through it. So it doesn't rip you apart. As Peter says, uh, literally to the, to the people in Turkey here, he, said, he actually says, no, uh, these trials have come so they might refine you. That's the word he uses there. They might refine you. Now you're probably saying, how do I know that is true? Well, this is why the Bible calls us and why Peter calls the people to look back. To look back and we've got to see what, you know, what God himself was willing to go through. You see, it isn't until you look back to the the cross of Jesus Christ that you see how far God was willing to go to understand our suffering and to be with us in our suffering. The prophets in verse 10 and 11 of of the passage you've got open there, you see they even predict this suffering that was to come, which is interesting, isn't it? It's only Christians, very unique, that they predict the suffering of their leader. See, Jesus suffered everything that we have ever suffered and and infinitely more. 
So you might be saying, oh, God doesn't understand what I'm going through right now. No, he never would. You might be suffering, let's say, a physical pain right now. And you're saying, oh, God, you can't possibly understand what I have to go through every day of my life. And yet when you look back and you see Jesus strung out on a cross with blunt nails driven through his wrists and ankles, you begin to see he might understand physical suffering. Because his suffering was huge. Oh, but you'll be saying, oh, my, my suffering isn't physical, it, it's more emotional. And, you know, the ups and downs and the things that I struggle with, it's so hard. And yet, that's why the Bible says look back. And look back at what Jesus took on himself when he went on the cross emotionally and and look back at the garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross and see the anguish and the torment that he had to go through in his heart and his mind and he did that for you. And and you may be one of those people, and my heart goes out to you if you are, that you you may be, you know, Every night you, you just sit there and go, why God? Why do I have to go through this? And it's not, that's why the Bible calls us to look back and see that Jesus has an infinitely greater cry. As he stretches his arms out on the cross and he says, just before he dies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken the translation says cry, but I think that's just to be kind to my boys so they don't find it so freaky. The, the literal translation is he shrieks. It's blood curdling. It's anguish filled crying. As he calls out on the cross, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus, as we look back, suffered infinitely more than any of us could ever imagine as he willingly takes on himself all the pain all the suffering all the justice that I deserve why? because I've every day turned my back on God and said no I'm going to do things my way the Bible calls that sin it's just a little bit of rebellion I guess It is utter pain. It is the, if you want to think your life is you know, a bit hot at the moment, a bit you know, fiery trial, you know, that's the infinite furnace of history. As Jesus was being forsaken, removed from all the love and all the light of his Father. So we need to take our question to the cross. If God is good, why is he allowing this suffering in the world? Well, even though the the cross can't tell you what the answer to that question is, the the cross can tell you what the answer can't be. The, the, The answer can't be that God doesn't love you. No, he gave his son for you. Of course he loves you. It can't be that he doesn't love you. It can't be that he doesn't care or that he's remote or indifferent. He has suffered infinitely greater than we have. He plunged himself to to understand us and to suffer in our place. Why? So he could end all suffering one day. So in our furnace, we need to look back to the ultimate furnace to see what Jesus has experienced for us. But also, and very quickly to finish, the last two points are very quick, so don't panic. Um, We need to look forward to something. 
Peter points out to suffering Christians that the furnace that they are suffering in, the blazing fire, will one day be quenched. Let's look at verse 3, though, if we can. It should come up on the screens. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, that mercy is what he has given, that kindness that he has given his son to suffer that punishment, that, that furnace that we deserve. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth, a new life, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You see, for the one who trusts in Jesus and his death on his cross, life now is not the end of the love and the light that we experience in this world of all of God's goodness and kindness. There's something precious of infinite value to come. And it's expressed in that word inheritance in, in the text there. But there's more. There's, there's also, it's not just all that is to come. There's something now as well. There's a living hope that we get a taste of today. That he- it is the heavenly ad- eternal dwelling place. And, and that is sometimes depicted as somewhere of compensation. You know, you suffer a bit now, you have an illness, and and God will therefore make you feel better when you get to heaven with him, and he'll compensate in some way. But that's not the way that the living hope expressed in the Bible is, that's not the way it's worked out. Because the living hope spoken here is, is, is founded in a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that historical fact that many, many scholars of the time attested to. This living hope allows Christians... To live now, to endure suffering now and pain now, because it is a hope of a resurrection to come. A life after this life of suffering. But it's not just a compensation life to come. It is a life being restored. So this wreck of a body that you see in front of you will be made all spanking new. It would be fantastic. I have to say, I'm a bit of a wreck. And if you don't know me very well, you, you, I am, I'm broken in bits many places over. But, you know, I'm looking forward to that living that, that day when I'm restored, as I guess many of us are. See, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides Christians with hope, living hope, if we dare to trust him. See, God's answer to this question of suffering today is to look back, secured in the resurrection, but it's also to look forward to this living hope and live every day in the light of that hope as well. But also, lastly, very quickly, we need to look into something. Look at verse 12. It's utterly amazing. Look what the angels long to look into. Verse 12 at the end. I'll read actually all of verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preached the gospel, that good news, the gospel, good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. You know what Peter is literally saying there? The word, the word is this funny Greek word, epithemia, is, is, is saying angels lust after these things. That's what he's literally saying. They lust after this good news that Jesus, as we look back, died on the cross to, take, uh, to deal with our, our suffering and pain and to provide a living hope for the future. Angels, they, they can't get enough of this stuff. They're continually going down. Have a look at this. But why is this good news about Jesus so amazing? And why does it speak into our lives today uh, where we suffer and, and, and so on? Have you ever thought about why Jesus bothered? 
why this good news is so good? I mean, why did he actually need to come down? He didn't. Can you imagine his life before? I mean, he's sat up in heaven, having a great time with his father. Everything's perfect and gleaming. You think, why, why bother? Why bother? The only thing that Jesus did not have in heaven was you. The only thing he did not have in heaven was you. And I'm not talking rubbish me like now. You know, with damaged legs and everything else wrong with me and follically challenged. I mean, totally restored, beautified, transformed you. That's why Jesus came from heaven to earth. Because he wanted you. And that is what the angels long to look in for. That's what they they can't get enough of. Because they, they look at it and see, Jesus was willing to come down from perfect union with his Father in heaven to stretch out his arms in the ultimate furnace of this world. And to come out as resurrected, pure, refined gold for you. For you. Jesus went through his furnace looking forward to his living hope. You are his living hope. If you would humbly put your trust in him. And the thought that you were his living hope will make him your living hope. Well, what does that do? Very quickly. It doesn't fully answer our question tonight, does it? But it does enable you to walk through any furnace of suffering that you may face. See, God responds to our suffering. Let me summarize. He says, look back. Look back at what I have done. I've put my son into the, the ultimate furnace of suffering to deal with your suffering ultimately, fully, Finally, he's asked us to look forward, to see our hope secured. If we, if we only trust in Jesus' death on the cross, our hope is secured. It's a living hope because Christ is living and resurrected. And then he says, finally, look into, look into the saving gospel message of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. So how can a good God allow suffering today? Do you know what? I don't know. I don't know. But what do I know as I read God's word? I do know that God loves me. He's done everything for me in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do know that he walks with me in my suffering and has secured an eternity with me. Which will justify and restore all that I've done, said and thought. Therefore, I think, and many Christians do around the world, secured and trusting in Jesus' Jesus' work and the word revealed in the Bible, we can say God is a good and all-powerful God. Does it answer all the questions? No. But that's why you can ask some questions now. Look, why don't you have a chat to the person beside you? I've said plenty enough. Way too much, I'm sure.